My big brother and my cousin used to tell me Shut the fuck up when it's storming Listen to God talking Although that was bullshit To this day, it's like the calm comes over me Whenever it rains It's like the world stands still Welcome to a guest in the house podcast I am Mickey Hess, one of your co-hosts And I am David Shanks, aka Trom Diggs Your other co-host What's going on, brother? Man, I'm sitting here in New Jersey. You're sitting down in Maryland. Still, I yep. assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still in relative isolation. I still don't get out much. Uh, neither do I. And I think that's smart. And I, I'm pretty good with it, honestly. I don't miss going places the way I thought I would. It, 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 you know what? And we talk about um, privilege, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm very grateful. That um, we have the privilege to just stand down. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, some of us, some of us are out here. You know, the essentials, they don't, they don't have a choice, and we, we you know, they make the country run, and and we salute yeah. them. But um, I do uh, appreciate the fact that uh, me and my family can just lay low and ride this thing out. That's it, and really consider for yourself what is essential. You know, every time you think you need something. See if you really need it because you are putting somebody else at risk. Mm-hmm. You know, they got to come into work. They got to perform some kind of service. Um, yeah, consider what is essential. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes. And try to be, you know, keeping that in mind and keeping your privilege in mind. Try to be nice to the folks who are, um, you know, checking your groceries and, you know, mm-hmm. driving the train and your bus and you know whatever you know all of these folks that like i said are like the engine of the country you know and just try and be nice absolutely and so speaking about this country and the way it runs or does not run um today we're going to talk about patriotic education um a term that i just learned um fairly recently like today yeah i think it was coined (laughs) fairly recently um it was coined by our president donald trump um in response to the 1619 project which is a new york times initiative we'll talk more about soon today um but also in response to critical race theory which is like a 30 plus years old academic subspecialty or specialty, I suppose, um, that has, you know, it has some current reverberations and it certainly still is out there in the university. Um, But the gist of this, the idea of patriotic education is that these initiatives on the part of black scholars and white scholars and Latinx scholars who believe certain facets of American history have not been depicted very accurately in higher education and secondary education in America, um, and have proposed other ways we could look at the history of our country. And of course, in rejection of that, we have the notion of patriotic education, which is essentially make education great again. (laughs) <laughs> that's because hilarious I, I, yeah i mean i don't i don't know about a lot of our listeners out there i actually do know about a lot of our listeners because i know the schools i went through public american schools um and i've worked with 
25 years worth of college students in New Jersey and Indiana and Kentucky. And I know for a fact that the history of this country as it is presented in American schools is not particularly accurate. Mm. So first, I guess we should address, you know, what does an initiative like the 1619 Project hope to achieve? What's it about? And then the backlash that is created in this new move to go back to patriotic education. Now, I'm, you know, I, I want you to, uh, as they say, cook this episode. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a student. Okay. Because um, I, I want you to give us a little more... F- um, and it's not you, you weren't in those meetings, so I don't expect you to be an expert on patriotic <laughs> education, but, um, just give us a little more on that. And what was the second thing that you mentioned? Um, that is critical race theory, that, 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 mm-hmm. that I need schooling on. Okay. Um, and you'll probably find that you don't. I can put it together, but I just mean uh-huh. from like the, where did it come from? Who, where was it implemented? You know, kind of the history of it. Uh, I mm-hmm. figured out what it is based on um, some of the stuff that I was reading in response to um, President Trump's um, press conference regarding that a couple weeks ago, right? Maybe um, yeah. two, three weeks ago. So, in catching up with that, you know, I'm caught up on kind of what's going on, but um, I'm really going to lean on you for some understanding in the nuance department. Well, so I'll, I'll jump back as the educator, I guess. Exactly. Um, yeah. As someone who, who's been involved in teaching and I uh, was trained to whatever extent we train teachers and professors in this country. Um, which honestly, my training and teaching did not involve much of this, mm. not much at all. And, you know, I got a, a master's degree in teaching back in 1998, a PhD in English in 2005. And there was very little of this in my education. And that's not all that long ago. Mm. So, so first of all, this notion that Professors and teachers are sort of this monolithic body out to brainwash American kids into hating America or wanting to turn America communist or socialist is really bullshit. I mean, across (laughs) the board, that falls apart. If you, I don't know if the people who make that complaint have ever set foot on an American university campus or ever spent much time talking to professors or teachers, but that falls apart pretty quickly when you look at the reality. But I'll take it back even further than 1998 and uh, 2005. So I'll take us back to two foundational texts that I know we've mentioned on this podcast before, and I know Dave is familiar with because you brought them up. Oh. Yeah, so, so both of these would predate the 1619 Project, right. and they would predate critical race theory. So number one, W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America. Okay. Now, today you would label it revisionist history, but it was a correction of the history, Mm. of the way that Americans 
had understood and taught their children to understand the end of the Civil War and its aftermath. Okay. Now, the other book I would bring up is Carter Woodson. And this is one that Dave has brought up on the podcast before. Yes. Carter Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro. That, that is a book that I have read. <laughs> I, trail, <laughs> I trail you in books read by about <laughs> 3,000, but uh, that one I got. No, yeah. So tell me why I might bring that one up in this context. Um, I would say, well... I'd probably say a lot, but I would say because there is a deliberate mistelling of the history of this country for a direct purpose. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about the miseducation of the Negro, um, it was all, it was almost uh, like double entendre or something if he was an MC because he, the most educated of our people are the most miseducated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from that premise of, um, you know, from, you know, from Carter G. Woodson's premise that I gathered, it was more like, you know, the ones who are being educated by the time they get to, um, you know, bachelor and master level there sometimes is like an embedded you know disdain for your own people the people that you may have left mm-hmm. behind and so um you know the concept that the more educated you are the less educated you are <laughs> is uh one that would you know make sense in this theory of like the mistelling of you know American history. Mm, absolutely. So if that system that Woodson was critiquing just didn't serve the African American children, mm-hmm. are we that sure that it serves non-African American children? I think that it serves those who would like to you know i don't know i think that (laughs) i think that there's benefit from both black people not knowing what really happened and white people not knowing what really happened i think that much of how this um experiment has been able to last this long is through that you know, everything that falls under the umbrella of American patriotism, you know, from a pop, from a propaganda standpoint, from a, you know, mass media, TV, popular culture, that kind of thing. Like the things that are pumped to the masses. Mm -hmm. I agree that it's, it's the same, it's the same thing, you know, but black people are as afraid of black people as white people are. They watch the same news. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think it serves the same purpose, mis- miseducating black children and white children. 
with the distinction, I think that white children are taught to take a particular unique sense of pride. Well, because that's in the that story. version of the story, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, the overall goal, you know, being division, being mm. divide and conquer, being all of that, it serves that same purpose. It's two totally different roads to mm. that same, <laughs> to that same space. <laughs> We're finding that out now. You know what I mean? Like, um, because there are people arguing that our country has not been more divided. And that's insane when we had a civil war, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're as divided now, more divided than ever before, right? Mm -hmm. Except for, you know, when we literally split apart right. in a war. Right. But that, I mean, that says a lot that, you know, we're in 2020, so, you know, um, but we're also in the information age, and a lot of people are finding out a lot of stuff. Exactly. Just the, <laughs> the same thing as, you know, we're seeing more police brutality because it's easier to record. Correct. Not because there's necessarily an uptick in incidents. Exactly. The veil so, has been lifted. The veil, and that's Du Bois again, right? That might be. The notion of the veil that, yeah. that comes from Du Bois. Yeah. So, and, and again, you know, we'll get back to Du Bois, and that's this is sort of prehistory to critical race theory in the 1619 project. But Woodson was 1933 when he when he published Miseducation of the Negro, and as Dave said, you know, it, it, the central argument was that black children in America were basically being indoctrinated mm -hmm. um, towards a goal of assimilation. It, it, assimilation as a subordinate. <laughs> mm, there you go. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. Assimilate uh, into a society that considers class. you less than. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Permanent second class citizenship. Yeah. So when we move forward, and obviously we're skipping a lot of history before we come to critical race theory, which, uh, you know, really took hold in, say, 1990s? I mean, uh, 1980s, 1990s. Um, I see a lot of people kind of trace its roots to 1987 or so. Okay. Um, so that's uh, the end of uh, the great Ronald Reagan's run? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would be, <laughs> huh? Yeah. That's true. Okay. So um, names you may have heard who are included or associated with critical race theory be Kimberly Crenshaw, whose ideas of uh, intersectionality are still very popular. Okay, intersectionality, intersectionality has, a, has, been a, right? has been a hot button word for the last few months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Derek Bell, who wrote a book called Race, Racism, and American Law. That was all the way back in 1973. It became kind of one of the foundational texts for critical race theory. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, in a nutshell, and this is very reductive, obviously, but just kind of to, to move the conversation along just by way of defining what critical race theory is and was, mm -hmm. um, as a lot of academics were doing at the time, it questioned some fundamental assumptions. Hmm. You know, if you if you change the givens, if you change the assumptions of the way you approach an issue, 
you end up with a whole different framework for it, a whole different perspective, right? One second, is that Goldie going crazy? That back there? is. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it! I am screwing things up. We, Wait, let me. We we can't. Uh, <laughs> we can't like have a podcast where no. our listeners hear Goldie in the background going crazy, and I not say something about it. That would they, they, everyone with listening would be like, Good "Come point. on, guys, the dog." And so, she's yes, barking at nothing. Cool. I've met her. She's something else. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking out the window. I'm upstairs. She's downstairs and there's nothing out from her. I don't know what the hell she's working on. So I guess we're going to press on. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yes. Critical race theory. (laughs) With the dog in the background. Critical race theory. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, um, that was my dog, Goldie. Um, She barks. A lot. She really thinks she's defending our property. She's something else. She's (laughs) she's something else. Sorry. um, Going back into critical race theory. um, It was sort of a phase that um, the study of race in an academic context entered after the civil rights era. Mm. Um, And that notion of questioning our assumptions questioning our fundamental assumptions mm. when we talk about any issue. So notions of privilege would really weigh in just at the beginning of the podcast today. You know, we talked about um, sort of what we're experiencing currently during the ongoing pandemic. And Dave reminded listeners, you know, think about what your privileges are. If you get to stay home, that's a hell of a privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not forced to come into work, if you're allowed to work remotely. It's a privilege. It's absolutely a privilege. So a lot of what critical race theory asked people to think about was the way the privilege played into history. Mm. And it started out really as an offshoot of legal studies and then sort of took hold, you know, across a lot of fields in academics. Um, Yeah. And again, this is very much like a glancing reductive view. Do your homework. We're just here to talk, man. We're not here. (laughs) We educate a little bit and we offer Mm -hmm. our insights, but it's for you to go study. I'm going to study. That's why I'm letting him, that's why I'm listening to him because I don't know. (laughs) But, um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. You don't no disclaimers, man. You're talking. Definitely. And you know, they should some, be looking it up. Should be looking it up. And you know, buzzwords like privilege or white privilege specifically that you hear like tossed around on shit primetime cartoons at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have made it into kind of a caricature of a theory. Mm-hmm. A lot of this goes back to the early writings in critical race theory, the notion of microaggressions, the notice, mm-hmm. notion of uh, racial essentialism, mm-hmm. um, intersectionality, as I've mentioned, and even, you know, revisionist history in a lot of ways gets kind of wrapped up in the whole story. Right. So again, you know, questioning your pers- your assumptions changes the perspective and the framework with which you approach any topic. So an extension of that, we get to today. You know, we've gone through the, the 1880s with Du Bois, the 1930s with Woodson, late 80s, early 90s, the beginnings of critical race theory. And now we get to 2019, mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times. Yes, Ida, Ida Bay Wells on Twitter. Project. Yeah, what's her name on Twitter? Yeah. It's a good Ida handle. Ida Bay Wells. Yeah, yeah. Ida Bay Wells. Because we, we, we discussed the 1619 Project on the podcast before, for sure. Glancingly, yeah, yeah. we've been in there. Yeah. And yeah, if you don't get the joke of her Twitter handle, go look that up. <laughs> True. Yeah. So now we get to the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. And sort of the loose premise of the 1619 Project is what if we didn't begin our teaching and our thinking about American history with 1776, mm-hmm. the year that America f- filed the documents basically to become an independent country? Mm-hmm. What if we started the story of America that we tell ourselves, that we think about, that we teach our students? With 1619, which was the first arrival of African slaves on the North American continent. Enslaved Africans. Enslaved Africans. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's they left, they left free. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So yeah, 20, I believe, um mm-hmm. captured Africans that were um men with cargo mm-hmm. on a um what was the uh, look it up? But it was it was not it was not a British vessel. It was intercepted, oh. and I believe um, the this the ship's cargo was then brought to the shores of um, Jamestown, Virginia, in 1619. And that cargo included, I believe, twenty enslaved Africans. Okay, 1619 then. Africans who would become enslaved set foot for the first time on U.S., what will eventually become U.S. soil, North American soil at that time. Now, why would it change the way you look at the story of America? First of all, to start with 1619 instead of 1776. Why would the introduction of slavery be the first page of the story? And the idea is because that laid the groundwork for so many of the issues that we're currently dealing with, even in 2020. I would add to that, it also is the origin of the economic engine that that enabled America to become Mm. what it would become. Absolutely. Right. And and you trace that history forward. Um, we already see how so much of it plays out in terms of economics as far as who has what, who doesn't have what, mm-hmm. who's allowed to have what. So when we're, we're sitting here in 2020 looking at issues of police violence and, and police killings of civilians, a lot of people don't realize the origin of police departments and slave patrols. Mm-hmm. And then again, here we come back to slavery at the root of a very contemporary problem. Very contemporary problem. Not a rooted, new problem, rooted, but a contemporary problem. Rooted in slavery. Absolutely. Now, if you want to look at prison populations, prison mm-hmm. overcrowding, um, of course, during the pandemic, this has become a little more visible, but not nearly visible enough to some people. Um, 
what sort of a crime should send someone to prison for decades or for the rest of their lives? Mm-hmm. Who stands to profit off of people being put in prison? Mm-hmm. What do the demographics look like? You know, you take a, a black person and a white person charged with the same crime, um, no priors, no prior arrests or convictions on either one of them. Statistics show that the black citizen is more likely to end up in prison for longer. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the origin of prisons in the U.S. and the expansion of prisons in the U.S.? And practices such as convict leasing that happened in the aftermath of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. uh, which was essentially a way for white farmers in the South to sort of legally re-enslave black men. Right. And again, here we are. We're looking at, okay, we got overcrowded prisons. Trace back the history. Oh, my God, there's slavery again. And then, um, and that's a a plug for Ava DuVernay's documentary, The um, 13th. 13th because the 13th amendment is really the establishment of what we're talking about in terms of the prison industrial complex what would become Mm -hmm. the prison industrial complex so even that that constitutional amendment that gave enslaved africans freedom Mm -hmm. creates what becomes a current problem, mm-hmm. mass incarceration. Absolutely. Or if you want to look at President Trump's recent sort of dog whistle call to suburban moms, if you want to keep your suburbs looking like they look, he essentially said, you probably want to vote for Trump. Mm. Um, the notion of, of real estate redlining, what neighborhoods were were marked okay for black Americans to enter versus right. what neighborhoods were marked exclusive right. for whites. Right. Very contemporary problem. Not new again, but contemporary is still here. Mm-hmm. You can trace that all the way back to slavery and its aftermath. Right. So I think the 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 overall point that we're um kind of hitting on is the refocus of the origins of the United States of America to the period, the I guess that's almost 100, 100 years, 150 years before yeah. independence. Mm. Because they, they built a nation that was a colony and then they went to war for their independence to become a nation. Mm-hmm. It's not like they just went to war, won their independence and then said, Hey, we probably should start a nation since we're <laughs> free now. Right? So industry money was being generated. People were landowners. There was a whole society happening. And then they said, hey, we're tired of paying taxes. Absolutely, right? So to start there, <laughs> well, how'd you get there? What happened? How'd you even get this land? Yeah. Weren't people here? <laughs> so it's beyond slavery. It's just 
like what what became America and how did it become American? Everything that goes into that, as opposed to just like, you know, our forefathers and cherry trees and wooden teeth and, you know, riding horses and all the stories that we hear. Yeah. And, you know, if you're like me, you came to this backwards. Right. You know, generally, I think that the most recent history probably gets the least attention in school. You know, you start way back in 1776 and you kind of get that over and over and over. They drum it into your head. But, you know, even to look outside of issues of race just for a second, although, of course, that runs through any issue in American history. Um, I can't even I was going to have an example that didn't include race. And then I thought, nope, race is right there. <laughs> but <laughs> Vietnam War, I mean, how how much time can you remember ever spending reading about or discussing something like the Vietnam War? In, in school? school? I learned the Vietnam War, I'm pretty sure, through movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they never quite get even that recent. No. So if you're like me, you kind of piece together this trajectory as you you know paid attention to what was going on around you in the world as you got right. a little bit older and became more invested in it. Right. And then you sort of learn like, oh, well, this isn't new. You know, my dad said he saw this 30 years ago. Right. And, you know, you read a little more, you say, oh, wait a second, this happened 100 years ago. Yeah. So there are all these patterns and cycles. But if you're like me, you came to it kind of backwards. You know, you start with a present conundrum and then you do a little exploring, talking Mm. to people, reading, listening, and you find your way back into history. So what I like about the 1619 Project is it said, what if we backed up? What if we started the story not with liberty, but with enslavement? Right. And I've got a good quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, who again is the, the originator, the creator of the 1619 Project. And this she, went up, she won a Pulitzer Prize for she it. Won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. This is from an interview she did with NPR. She says, we are a country that was founded on a paradox, on a contradiction, on these majestic ideals of universal rights and liberty, and also a country that was founded on the practice of institutional slavery. And we should be able to grapple with both of those things and with that truth. We should be able to have a complex and nuanced understanding of our country. And that sounds like a very eloquent um, version of the plea that we've been making (laughs) for a few months now, you know, let's, let's be Mm -hmm. real. Let's have a real conversation. Let's have real dialogue and, you know, let's learn and let's, let's move forward. If it's really about what it's about, you know, and if if it's not about that, then we got to figure something else out. But if it's supposed to be about harmony and, you know, like we said, and one nation under God, then, we we can't pretend that some of the things that we now know we don't know it's one thing when we did not know like you said but now we know so what do we do about that you know everyone knows or has seen a black man unarmed lose his life at the hands of law enforcement we've seen mm-hmm. enough of these now that you know, I'm sure some people who would otherwise have been completely oblivious 
to this or could care less or would have a reason why it could have happened. There's some of these instances that they've been able to, they've had to look and say, okay, now that's just wrong. (laughs) So it's like, we can't unlearn these things. So now the same premise of like, Hey man, like 200 or 150 years of free labor set you guys up pretty good. Right. We, we've got, we can't pretend that's not, you know, once we get over the ugly stain of it and you know what I mean? Oh, it's so terrible what we did. We have to tell the story of how normal it was and what it created. It's like you're watching a hundred yard dash, right? And you only see the last 20 yards. Exactly. And nobody says, Hey, you know that, that motherfucker that won back at the starting gate, <laughs> tripped, tripped, tripped a couple the other people. dude. <laughs> right. Right. And you, you're just looking there at the last 20 right. yards and you're saying, Oh my God, he's so fast. He's so far ahead of that other guy. And the first, you know, the first, uh, whatever, 15 yards, I was in quicksand or there was, you know what I mean? There are hurdles on those three lanes, but this guy's lanes free and clear. Like there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good, that's a good analogy. So you history and education should be a search for truth. That's kind of the definition of it. And you notice in the quote from uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, she says both, we should be able to grapple with both these things. Mm-hmm. And that is, happened. Absolutely. That is the ideal of liberty and the practice of institutional slavery. But if you look at comments from Donald Trump, and this is him announcing his 1776 commission. Again, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times never said, okay, we've got this 1619 project. We want you to throw out everything else you've ever used in your classroom and this will be it. It wasn't written as a curriculum. Nobody ever said that, right? And she says, we should be able to talk about both. It's a journalism piece, right? Now, contrast her her statement about we should be able to talk about both and have a productive conversation about the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, Donald Trump said, whether it is the mob on the street or the cancel culture in the boardroom, the goal all is the same, to silence dissent to scare you out of speaking the truth, and to bully Americans into abandonment of their values, their heritage, and their very way of life. We are here today to declare that we will never submit to tyranny. We will reclaim our history and our country for citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed. Now that last part sounds a lot like our founding documents, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And those didn't really hold up to the the actual practice of slavery, did they? The amazing thing about that entire quote (laughs) is that it sounds like something like that someone should be saying to people who are oppressed. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And so the, the concept that he's feeding to this demographic that he feeds that they are the victims of something evil <laughs> mm-hmm. and organized and that it is their duty to fight back and that the billionaire from New York City is the guy that's on their side. 
which is amazing because if you look at a lot of colonial documents, you'll see very wealthy colonial landowners complaining about feeling like slaves to the British. Mm-hmm. While you know they turn around and, and command their literal slaves to do all the work. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll compare themselves to slaves. They'll say, you know, this, the situation the British have us in, having to pay taxes and stuff, that's like slavery. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar sort of attitude that you just described, right? Yeah. We're raising up against the tyrants, says the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> Correct. Right? Correct. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. In fact, I'm leading the charge. Mm-hmm. I'm leading the charge. If you guys just trust me. And again, we're talking about his ideas. We're talking about his rhetoric. We're talking about words that he spoke. We're not talking about a person here. Um, We're talking about these ideas that can be incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when this airs because we don't know when this airs, but I guess we should say, get well, Mr. President. That's right. He is in the hospital as we are recording days at Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. I watched um, two minutes of a helicopter <laughs> just spinning its propellers. We're waiting to see if the president will emerge from the wild. Yes, I think we see him. If you look through those gla- the glass, yeah. you can see him there. Um, and I mean, they were in. They were there. They were like, it was intense intense 10 minutes of watching this helicopter and i'm like okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is new this is news okay and now this isn't fox this is like i must have walked past cnn or something and it was like full full full-on coverage and i'm thinking about um back in 2016 was that 2016 i can't even tell my i can't even tell anymore yeah back in 2016 when you know, and I'm not, this is not my thing. So I'm I'm not really like for anyone versus anybody else. You know, I'm for right against wrong. Um, but when Bernie was like on the campaign, he was like, it was like right after Super Tuesday and he like won something that no one thought he was going to win or something like that. And he's like, they're like, oh, Bernie's about to um, emerge from his, you know, his victory thing. And they're like, wait, 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 Donald Trump's in Iowa. Boom, and they went right wow. <laughs> to Donald Trump. And this was liberal news. Hmm. And I said, oh, this dude's going to be president. Yeah. I mean, that there's the appeal of the villain, right? He sells advertising. Yeah. It just, it's just, he, and he knows it because mm. he's been doing it. He has a hit show, two, three. He had three spinoffs. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, I know people who who disagree with anything he's ever put forward, anything he's ever said, but they spend all day reading about him. Mm-hmm. You know, they spend all day watching videos of him. It, it's like a hate affair, man. Mm-hmm. It's a very yeah. passionate hate affair, and he's he's eating it up. Yeah, he's eating it up, and that you know. But I think. I think, yeah, you know, that, that juxtaposition and, and, you know, and, and tying that back into the word privilege, you know, sure, the, 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 the right to feel like any transgression that you see as a transgression, 
requires that response Mm -hmm. while you're a transgressor. So it's, so what's good for you is not what's good for me because we're not equal because you would never tolerate what you give out. Oh no. You think you're being oppressed because. And that's the root of it, right? (laughs) Other people exist. Because, I mean, you know, some of these folks, um, some of these folks, and this is not a color thing, some of these folks, when you hear them speak about immigrants, you'd really think that something was done to them by an immigrant. Yeah. Even if, if you had a backstory, I could even understand, like, hey, this happened to me. And it was some illegals. And that's why I have this stance. Some of these people have never, they don't come into any contact. They just, the premise that they're here. And that's by design, right? <laughs> that's by design. Yeah, I mean, just as we mentioned real estate redlining, which, you know, has con- continues to shape the way neighborhoods are formed. Um, but this argument, you know, it becomes a reverse racism argument. You know, how, you know, how dare you bring up the past in a way that makes white people look bad, that's reverse racism. And, right. You know, even in the same speech, Donald Trump went on to say, by viewing every issue in the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation. Mm-hmm. And we must not allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A what new segregation. Wrong, what was wrong with the way things were? You know, and that's, that's, that's the whole point. That's make America great again, right? Like what was wrong with the way things were when everyone knew their place. That's the again, right? <laughs> I mean, what what era exactly are we hearkening back to as the golden age? Yeah. Yeah, that again is a very weighted word in that slogan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, patriotic education, again, you could basically call it make education great again. Make education great again. Yeah, Because like part of this whole argument is let's go back to the way we used to teach the story of America with heroes. Yeah. Yeah. We gave these folks too much mm. and now they want the whole country. That's, that's the entire thing. Mm. Damn. We let them out. We let them free. Then we gave them rights. Then we allowed more of them to come in. And now white people are oppressed. And now, we're going to lose our country. This is our country. We built this country. For free. No, 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 no. I'm saying this is their mentality. This is our country. We built this country. Which is just not true, right? Yeah. And there was a a time where these folks would never get away. You know, as you talk, so we even be getting into like the stuff with the proud boys and all of this stuff, you know what yeah. I mean? And, you know, it's just, yeah, you, we've given these folks too much and now they want the country. Yeah. And you know, they I just want to be brown and black mm. and, you know, LGBTQ in it and, mm. and, and, immigrant in it and crossing borders and we just can't take it anymore and where's the pride in whiteness right yeah didn't we used to look up to thomas jefferson and george washington as as white heroes yeah i mean that that's so much examples of manhood 
examples of white manhood. Real right? men, real men, real manhood. Yeah. That's why I mentioned the cherry tree and, you know what I mean? Like all of these myths and mm. Davy Crockett, and, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and see, I grew up around, uh, you know, small town, Southern white folks who were sure they would have it better if it weren't for initiatives like affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, if it weren't for farm labor going to immigrants. Um here and there, I would hear them complain about millionaires. But mm. for the most part, they sort of looked at millionaires as something that they could aspire to be. Correct. Um, you know, man, you know, that guy's got it all. I've been watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Mm-hmm. That guy's got like seven houses and 40 cars. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have that. Those are just random breaks. Man, I wish I got a break like that. You know, they look yeah. at it like, if I could just get a break. Man. And I'm not going to vote to raise that millionaire's taxes because what what about when I become a millionaire? You're right. right. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the the mentality that can become really divisive because then you start to see the world in terms of who looks like you and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so, how does our education system play into that? Mm-hmm. And what would be the alarm of um, introducing, what do we say, alternative facts? Yeah, alternative facts <laughs> uh, or revisionist history. Or revisionist history. I guess uh, folks on the right call it alternative facts and folks on the left call it uh, revising history. Mm-hmm. But it's really, I mean... Which is odd because the revisionist history, history is the history that... Mm-hmm. we actually know that's the revision exactly because yeah. <laughs> what happened <laughs> happened and then sure. someone someone gave another version of it. and now we're going trying to get back to what actually happened and we're the ones revising history yeah so but if you i guess set out in a to, way we are because you know if it's his story you're like this right so. if you set out to revise history i mean you're you're looking to get the facts right you know, you're double checking all the facts, seeing if that actually holds true if you examine it further. Mm-hmm. But then you can also be looking to correct intentional misinformation. Mm-hmm. You know, the this historian wrote this not because that's what he was under the impression really happened, but mm-hmm. because it made for a better story. It made certain people look better and certain people look worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you definitely no, can't have an agenda. Exactly. There's no way to account for everyone who was nefarious or something, you know what I mean? Like everyone who was ill intended, but don't we just want to get it right? Regardless of whether it was done on purpose or by accident or whatever, whatever it is, don't we just want to get it right? Don't we we owe it to our children? Yeah. (laughs) So however we got here, we're here now. Um, (laughs) And maybe it's human nature. I mean, a lot of people out there think, you know, I I sat in school for 12 years and this is what they taught me. And I sure as hell don't want to have to read some new thing now. Right. 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 And that's fine because some of these people, it don't matter what you tell them. Right. They're going to believe what they're going to believe. So it's not about them. Mm. But if we can, like I said, if for our children's sake, if we can start telling a story that is because... 
<laughs> you know, again, it's both and, mm. you know, so, but we have to talk about all of it so that you can decide if George Washington is a hero of yours or, you know, he's a victim of his environment and did great things, but the other thing can't be ignored. But he was also just behaving in the times. And, you know, one thing that internet culture has taught us is like, if you really look up to somebody and you just really think this person is a hero, somebody's got some dirt on them and they're Mm going to put it on the internet and you're going to learn things about them that you just wish you didn't know. Correct. And this could be from a guy who's on a sitcom you like all the way back to George Washington. Or or me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we all, we all got our bags. So, (laughs) you know, I, I think that, um, so, because this looks like a two-parter, mm. um, I want to give us something to talk about maybe in the... Uh, in part two. Part two. Yeah. Because we talked about the uh, president's remarks, mm-hmm. and um, we'll read those again in part two. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talked about, I guess, who he's talking to and, 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 you know, kind of the sensitivities he's playing to in the, in that group of people, but we have to talk about like this 1776 commission mm-hmm. and like what, what that has to do with curriculum in schools in America that are ran by local municipalities and states and why he thinks that, you know, like what, you know, that's a whole other conversation. That sounds like a good part too. Yeah. Because what is, what is he even talking about? (laughs) And maybe we need to go through like how curriculum and how, you know, state, like how that process happens Absolutely. Without any real interference from the federal government, I mean they yeah. they 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 give money, but they don't make policy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good place to open up part two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And an example of that is what we're going through now, where we have some schools open some places, some schools sure. not open other places. You know what I mean? Some some doing in class, some doing it's it's not. There's no mandate from the feds that says everyone yeah, has to. I be thought remote. Republicans were all about states' rights. That's the irony of it. <laughs> That's the irony of it. Well, I've got a short reading that I can kind of bridge us out and toward episode two. I don't know if you got any rhymes for us uh, today. You can you go ahead and then we'll keep going. We'll pick it up. All right. Well, this is just a, a quick piece from a guest in the House of Hip Hop, book I put out two years ago. So here we go. Education is the apology, wrote Boston Globe columnist Derek Z. Jackson in 1997. He said white folks need to study slavery to see that they are in the same trap as the 1800s when elite white industrialists raked in the profits while shafted white workers were left with the consolation that they were still better than black folks. 
Unwilling or unable to claw out the mansions, many white Americans commenced 60 years of lynching and segregation. End quote. The trap in 1997, according to Jackson, quote, millions of white Americans are genuine victims of the new economy with widening gaps in wealth and far less job security. But instead of focusing on that or universal health care or runaway college tuitions, a huge chunk of energy has been diverted to welfare and crime, issues that several studies confirm has been given an unfair black face, end quote. In a country founded on the division between white and black people, the conversation about race divides whites into camps convinced they're better than the other whites. Whether the split is between those whites who pride themselves on education versus common sense, or school versus church, or tradition versus progress, or rural versus urban identity, the division breeds an anti-intellectualism which leads both groups of whites to believe they've already figured things out. If education is the apology, how can I best help teach others what I've learned? It would be ridiculous to expect black people to be patient in the face of racism, as America has urged its black citizens to do for so many decades and centuries now. It's the white Americans who have a responsibility to educate themselves and then others in the painful history of race in this country. As a white person speaking to another white person, I may achieve more when I open not with a condemnation of their ignorance, but by admitting my own ignorance and telling the story of how I continue to read and listen in order to overcome it. I'm not urging civility toward white supremacist groups, but toward the whites who don't quite see what's so wrong with the white supremacist slogans, statues, and flags, Hmm. because they may not have learned their history. We might borrow a strategy from the novelist Kurt Vonnegut, who described his approach to classroom teaching in terms of battlefield triage. Some students he knew he couldn't help, and some would do perfectly well without his help. But he was most concerned with the middle third, those students who he felt could immediately benefit from the lessons he had to offer. White people speaking to other whites about racism might follow Vonnegut's triage approach and not give up on the lost causes and sure things, so much as feel a real urgency to reach that middle third whose minds we are most likely to change. And that's that. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a plan. All right, stay tuned for part two. Part two, keep it going. We need a break, though. Let's do it. So this was the guest in the house. I'm Mickey Hess. And I am Trom Diggs, a.k.a. David Shanks, or David Shanks, a.k.a. Trom Diggs. Depends on how you know me. That's it. All right, see you next time. Peace.